Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Today, we move into the final few weeks of Jesus's first beatitude. And as we talked about, this beatitude, this, this blessing pronouncement that Jesus makes is really the linchpin to everything to every other beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus leads off with in his list of those who truly live the blessed life. Not man's definition of what blessing looks like, not the world's definition of what blessing looks like, but God's definition of what blessing looks like looks like. If you rewind all the way back to the beginning of this sermon series, way back in July, we introduced the Beatitudes and looked at them as a whole. And we talked about the importance of the fact that this sermon is the first sermon that Jesus teaches in his earthly ministry. So before this sermon, there were 400 years in between the Old and New Testament where there was no word from the Lord where there was no prophecy recorded. And so when the silence, when that 400 years of silence is broken, Jesus breaks that silence with this teaching. And he breaks that, that, or starts this teaching, he breaks that silence with this pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So let's get poor in spirit, y'all, right? It's not exactly the rally cry that you yell that gets people pumped up and ready to go storm the castle, huh? But it's the rally cry that Jesus cried. So we better learn how to get excited about it, right? So today we talk about exactly what that means, a definition of what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, quick English lesson. Some of y'all know I used to be an English teacher. English lesson. When you have titles of things like sermons, you capitalize the first letter of all of the major words in that title, right? You guys learned that in high school English, I hope, or else you didn't have very good high school English teachers. But here's the deal. This is a biblical lesson, which supersedes an English lesson. If we capitalize the S in spirit, some could be led to believe that that means the Holy Spirit. Are we advocating that Jesus says we are to be poor in the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not, right? but I'm stealing thunder from my first point, so let's get into it. As always, compliments to my father-in-law, we have three main points. First, there are two spirits. There are two spirits that we have to choose to follow. Point number two, we'll look at Jesus' super popular teaching, that's sarcasm, that you following him requires death to self. Death to self is the first step before we can take any other step with Jesus. And then finally, as a church, we are going to count the cost of following Jesus. So first up, and this is what we talked about. This is what I was talking about. There are two spirits 
that we can follow. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but there's two ways of doing things, right? There's God's way and there's man's way. Along with this, there are two spirits. There is God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, and then there is everything else. Ladies and gentlemen, if it is not God's spirit, guess what it gets lumped in with? Everything else. So look, you want to play spiritual warfare? You want to find demons behind every corner? Look, look demons exist, y'all. You know, you can, you can say what you want. You can, you know, call me outdated and all the things. There are evil spirits in the world. But guess what, y'all? Your spirit isn't any better than those ones. Okay? Lots of times we get, we get into this thing where it's, oh, you know, the devil made me do it. No, oh, these spirits behind all that. Y'all, you're just as bad as the demons. You, on your best day, doing good things in your power is no different than f- people who are possessed by evil spirits. It's the same thing. It is either God's way or it is everything else. We have got to do things God's way. So when, God's, or when Jesus says, when God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like we said, he is not advocating that we be poor in God's spirit. Now, it's interesting Greek lesson here, but the Greek word that is used for spirit, it's the same whether it's talking about the Holy Spirit or man's spirit, all right? It's, it's this interesting Greek word pronounced pnevma, and it literally is translated as breath. That's what that word means, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 2, verse 7, where we're told the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living person. God breathed into mankind. Human beings are the only one of God's creation. You know, y'all, I'm going to burst some bubbles here, and y'all are going to hate me. You know, there's a lot of talk. There's popular children's movies that say all dogs go to heaven. Y'all, dogs don't have souls, right? So I'm not going to say dogs don't go to heaven. That's between you and Jesus. You can take that up with him, okay? I'm not staking any theological claim in this. But here's the deal. Human beings are the only one of God's creation that he breathed his breath into. And at that very moment, human beings were given a spirit. But then Genesis 3 happened. And that spirit decided, that spirit within humans decided, We can do things better than God. I know how to go my way better than God. And so I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to look out for number one. And Adam, Eve, we can get to God's status on our own. We don't need this guy telling us what to do. And at that moment, at that exact moment, the spirit of human beings stepped out of unity with the spirit of God. There was no longer unity in the spirit between humans and God. And ever since then, something has been broken. Ever since then, there are two spirits that we must choose whether or not we're going to follow. Are we going to walk in God's spirit? Are we going to obey God's law? Or are we going to go our own way? Again, you can say all you want about the evil spirits and the demons and all the things, y'all. All of that starts 
the evil spirits, all the things, it starts by well-intentioned men and women deciding, I know better than God. I can go my own way. We like to trump things up to make them these huge mountains, right? But sin is anything less than God's perfect way. So the moment Jeremy Allen Metzger says, you know what, God, I know what your word says, but I think I know how to do this better. I, modern psychology says that, you know, I can play games on my phone and unplug, so I don't really care what you have to say about it, God. That is the moment that we start following man's spirit instead of God's spirit. And we can't do that. This dichotomy that exists, these, these two spirits that exist, plays out wonderfully. It's so confusing. I love it. In Romans 7, it's probably one of the more popular passages of Scripture just because it is so completely confusing. And anytime there's any confusing passage of Scripture, we get 7,000 different theologies on all of the stuff. But this is what Paul says in Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that the law is good. But now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good thing that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin that dwells in me. Anybody's head hurting yet, right? What? Just stop, Paul. And he doesn't stop. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Careful. We talked about this last week, but a lot of times when we get into these confusing passages, there are major church splits over verses or passages like this because nobody can agree with what it said. But y'all, can I, can I just put out there, these church splits happen because we get lost in the weeds, right? We get lost in this and we want to know, well, what exactly was Paul talking about? Which sins were Paul talking about? What's okay? What's not okay? That's not what this means. Pull out the meat and potatoes, right? Pull out the main point. What is Paul saying? There is a very real nature that exists within us. There are two very real natures that exist within us. There is the law of flesh, which is sin, which is man's way. That's our spirit with a lowercase s, right? And then there's God's law, God's way, God's spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit, allowing him to lead us. And every moment of every day, there is a choice that exists as to which one of those spirits 
we will allow to be our master. Jesus's call, the very first pronouncement of blessing that Jesus makes, is that those who are poor in man's spirit are the ones who are blessed enough to see the kingdom of heaven. Those are the only ones who are blessed to live in the kingdom of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the problem. The problem. This is our problem. This was Paul's problem in Romans 7. This was Adam and Eve's problem in Genesis 3. This was Jesus' problem that he 100% destroyed, that he conquered through obedience and defeated the enemy once and for all because Jesus did it right. And what did Jesus do that was so right? We talk about this a lot here, but that there are multiple passages in John, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus says himself, I do nothing without first seeing the Holy Spirit do it. I say nothing except that which I hear from my Father. And we've got Christians running around today pretending that we know better than Jesus, right? Running around saying, oh, well, I can do this on my own. I got this. God, give me a little jump start, and then I can get it. Jesus didn't do that, y'all. Jesus never assumed to know what the Father was going to do or what the Father wanted him to say. So he was 100% obedient to the Spirit's lead. Why do we try to do it different? This is why Jesus starts the Beatitudes with this. Every other Beatitude hinges on this point. Poor in my spirit, so I can be radically filled up with God's. I've told you guys this, I think, in week one or week two in this sermon series, but my beatitude journey, right? I tried starting my beatitude journey at blessed and the pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I thought that was a cool promise, so that's where I wanted to start. And so I started praying that. But God said, Jeremy, you can't be pure in heart because you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness in your own life. So I said, all right. So I'll step back. I'll go back to that one. So I went back and I started praying, God, all right, help me to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that I can be satisfied. And God said, Jeremy, you can't hunger and thirst for righteousness because you, I can't satisfy you. You are far too satisfied with the things of this world. You are far too satisfied with your own spirit for me to fill you with my own. So I said, well, doggone. I guess I got to go all the way back to the beginning, huh? And so I walked all the way back to the beginning. God, I've got to be poor in spirit. I've got to learn to be poor in spirit. Poor in my spirit so that I can be filled with this. Y'all, I am convinced that this is the reason that Christians cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit. No matter how much they beg, no matter how many worship nights they go to, no matter how many Pentecostal rallies, no matter how far you travel to get to the next evangelist speaker who can lay hands and fill you, we cannot be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because we are far too full of our own spirit. There's a really great old school preacher named Dwight L. Moody. 
He said this, before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray him to empty us. But that's not very fun, is it? That doesn't look cool, does it? The reality is we don't want God to take things from us. We don't want God to make us do painful things. Most Christians, especially in the Western world, it's interesting the lack of persecution that we face, the more comfortable we get. What we really want is for Jesus to come along and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of the life that we've already created. Isn't it? I have my spirit. I'm quite comfortable with my spirit and the things that my spirit has build, built. The kingdom that I have made, right? We don't say these things out loud. But if you're honest with yourself, that's what we think. I like my life. I am happy with my life. And doggone it, doesn't God want me to be happy with my life? Not this one, y'all. Not at the cost of eternity with him. But that's what we want. Holy Spirit, come and fill me this much so I don't have to give that much back. But God is saying, Jeremy, you need to empty yourself completely. My dear friends, this version of Christianity that we have today, it just doesn't exist. Because it takes an enormous amount of effort and energy to turn a blind eye and ignore Jesus' core teaching of discipleship with him, which is death to self. In one of the most popular chapters in the Bible, it's one of the most popular because there used to be a time when you could not turn on a football game without seeing some idiot in the stands holding up a John 3.16. I say idiot because they usually didn't have a shirt on, and it's like in Buffalo in the middle of winter and they're freezing. Not because they were holding up a John 3.16 sign. But it used to be everywhere, right? You'd see somebody in the stands holding up a big sign that said John 3.16, and you flip there, for God so loved the world, and everybody knows that passage, right? But what's Jesus say before that? We, we have such a tendency to do this as human beings, don't we? We read about, for God so loved the world, and it makes us feel warm and snuggly, so that's all we look at. But what's Jesus say before that? In the context, Jesus says, he's talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, but he starts by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Ladies and gentlemen, being born again carries a very severe implication with it, doesn't it? We don't like that implication, and so we do our best to ignore it. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not there. To follow Jesus. Oh, this is the first step of becoming a disciple of Christ. The old man must die. You cannot be born again if there is not a death to be born back from. 
so the old man must die so that we can become born in the Spirit, born of the Spirit. Unless that happens, y'all, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It's not Pastor Jeremy's words, right? Y'all, I promise you, I'm not making this stuff up. You can go read your Bible for yourself. Jesus said it. Jesus goes on in John chapter 4. He talks to this Samaritan woman who's sitting by the well. And he tells the, to the Samaritan woman, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshiper. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians 3, 3, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Yet, what gets preached on Sundays at most churches across America? It's not this, is it? It's definitely not death to self. It's this self-help gospel that we've created. How to make yourself better. How to make yourself stronger. Guys, that's not the gospel, though. This is a false gospel that is stripped of its most foundational calling. And the fact that we miss that, y'all, is absolutely maddening when you just take one step back and think about it. Y'all, what is the foundational piece of the gospel? You all know what it is, because doggone if everybody doesn't wear one around their neck. Right? What do you wear around your neck to say, hey, look, guys, I'm a Christian? A cross, right? But yet, all over the place, at the most popular churches in the world, we try to disciple other Christians and we try to disciple the world into believing in this gospel where there is no cross for us to bear. Where there are no hardships, there is nothing hard. Come to Jesus, we'll make it so easy for you. But it doesn't exist. More than anything, people need us to be real with them. If they don't like it, that's on them. But y'all, we cannot give the world a gospel that doesn't exist. Because the gospel, a gospel that is stripped of the cross, has no power. And the world will not be changed by that kind of gospel. Y'all, it might not be popular. But it is way past time for the church to wake up and realize that it is not our job to be God's PR agent. It is not our job to prop him up on a pedestal and make him look more popular because we think, oh, I mean, <laughs> remember what Jesus did back in the old days of slaughtering all those nations? We got to do a lot of PR work. We got to get his name back up there so he looks golden again. That's not your job. It never has been. Find me one place in God's word where he goes and tells his prophets, y'all, I really need you to go make me look better. 
He doesn't say it, does he? When does God ever need our help? And how dare we think that we even hold any kind of intellect to be able to make God look better? The God of the universe doesn't need you to prop him up. He is plenty capable of defending his own honor. You know what's interesting about this when you take this a step back and you look at the church landscape, the number of people that we have who call themselves Christians in the United States and their moral compass. Let me ask you something. Is it better that we attract the masses with a false gospel, which is what we've been trying? And I'm not y'all, I'm not saying these people are evil that are doing this. It's good intention. Well, the more people we get in, the more people we have to reach for the gospel. But it's not the real gospel. Or is it better to reach a small number of people? A small number of people who know what the call really entails. Who know what Jesus is really asking. Because guess what, y'all? Some pretty incredible things happen when you push all those chips to the middle and say, Jesus, I'm all in. Jesus, I'm ready. I am laying everything down to follow you. You want to go back and read through Scripture at who changed the world, who Jesus, who God used to change the world. It was the few who counted the cost and knew that following God was worth it. It was not the masses who were one foot in, one foot out dabbling in Jesus' teachings and dabbling in the law of God. It was the people who had enough and said, God, I'm ready. And Gospel House, we have to do this. This is a step that gets overlooked in the church all the time today because we are so obsessed with numbers. How many, how many converts can we get? How many people can we get? How many salvations this week? And so we get them and they're cheap. They're cheap numbers. Because we don't care how they get in, just that we can add the tally mark. But Jesus himself doesn't say this. Y'all, I've, I think I've told some of you this before, but I've been in church planning meetings where this is the question that's asked. How can we make it easy for people to follow Jesus? Jesus didn't make it easy for people to follow Jesus, right? Why are we doing it any different? This is what Jesus says in Luke 14 says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, right, this is every pastor's dream, you're traveling along and large crowds are gathering. Woo, boost to the ego, right? So what's Jesus do, right? He gives a, a sermon on tithing and gets all that money, right? That's what you, no, it's not what he does. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who are watching it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this person began to build and was unable to finish. 
Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to face the one coming against him with 20,000? Otherwise, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and requests terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Whoa. What's Jesus saying, y'all? Not once does Jesus ever pretend that being his disciple is an easy ask. Not once does Jesus pretend that being his disciple is something that everyone can do. Look, it's easy. Just do this, 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 and you're in. Not once. Jesus tells us, count the cost. Count the cost. How many times do we ask people, who are interested in following Jesus, potential disciples. Okay, but before you do this, you need to sit down and you need to ask yourself, is this worth it? Because Jesus is going to ask you to give up everything. And I guarantee you, there's probably even some of you in this room, maybe, that when I say that, Jesus is going to ask you to give up everything, you're already wheeling through the excuses. Well, I mean, pastor, <laughs> he, I mean, he tells some people to give up everything, but there are other people who, y'all, if you're going through it, you're not there yet. You must be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Following Jesus requires carrying a cross. There is no Christianity without the cross. Matthew 10.38, Matthew 16.24, Mark 8.34, Luke 9.23, and here again in Luke 14, all passages of Scripture where Jesus says, you cannot be his disciple if you do not pick up your cross and follow him. Now, you cannot take Jesus' cross. That wasn't your cross to bear, right? You can't carry Jeremy's cross. That's not your cross to bear. Every single person, right, we get into this rut. We think, okay, God, I'm ready to give up my life. Right? We love the dramatic, some of us. I'm ready to go over to... Iraq and give my life ministering to you, Lord. And it's not good enough until I die for you, Jesus. Not if that's not what he's telling you to do. We make it these things, and Christianity, it really boils down to this. You want to know what Jesus' cross was? We look at the cross because that's where Jesus went, right? But it didn't have to happen. If God had another plan... It could have happened that way as well. Jesus' cross was perfect obedience to the Father. It was obedience that led him to that cross in which he gave his life to reconcile all of mankind back to God. Your cross is obedience to God. 
whatever it is he's telling you to do. And if he tells you that you're to go be a martyr for him somewhere, to get hung on a cross just like Jesus, then that's your cross to bear. If he tells you that your cross is to plant a church in, on Dowling Road, <laughs> right? Right across from the gospel house to drive the gospel house out of business, then that's, that's the, your cross to bear. But look, y'all, here's, if that's what God tells you to do, I will be the first one cheering you on. I don't care. If God wants you to put me out of business, then do it. That's what he's calling you to do. But obedience is the cross. There is a very real reality, and it's going to get me labeled by some in not very nice terms, and I don't care, because it's the reality. Being a disciple of Jesus is not for everyone. God does not call everyone. The invitation is open to everyone, right? You get the label anymore, oh, that's, that's exclusivity. You're being bigoted, pastor. Okay, if that's what you want to label it, then, then label it that. But the reality is, God knows, right? You want to call it exclusivity, God knows whether he's going to ask you to follow him, what you're going to say. And if you're going to say, well, yeah, Jesus, I'll follow you like on Sunday mornings, but then every other day of the week, I, I really like going to the bars and stuff, so I'm going to keep doing that. You're not a disciple. You're not following what he's asked, unless he told you to go to the bars. I've got some theological differences on that, but, you know, you never know. Being a real disciple of Jesus is not for everyone. The reality is following Jesus will cost you your life. That does not mean that you are going to be called to die for him. But it does mean that every single day you make the decision to be poor in spirit, to be poor in your spirit, to take up the cross of obedience and to be 100% obedient to his spirit, to follow him as he leads. And y'all, that is the most difficult thing in the world. Why, why is that passage from Romans 7 so confusing, right? I love it because it's real. If Christians were actually real, they would be honest about how real that passage is. Because every day I wake up, I want to do the wrong thing. Every day I wake up, there is some temptation that threatens to pull me away from God. And if I give in to my spirit, I follow that temptation. And it is hard in this world to say, no, I'm going to stay poor in spirit and I'm going to follow the will of my Father. And that is hard. Guys, every single day, I mean, you can hear just in the complete psychoticness that Paul uses in that passage, just, just how crazy it is, right? I mean, just reading it makes your head hurt because you can actually hear the voices in Paul's head. But y'all, that's the battle we face every day. Every moment of every day, there is a war going on in your soul. Which spirit are you going to follow? And if you want to pretend it's not there, you've already lost. 
But the reality is, this is hard. Jana texted me this week, and she said, are you sure following Jesus? She was joking, but she said, are you sure following Jesus is supposed to be this hard? And I said, oh, wait till you get to Sunday. I had already written the sermon, so I knew what was coming, right? But this is what I told her, and it's what I'm going to tell you because it's what the Holy Spirit told me. It is not a question of whether or not following Jesus is hard. It is. To tell you anything else would be a bold-faced lie. And I am not going to lie to you, church. Following Jesus is the hardest thing you will ever do. But that's not the question. The question is, count the cost. And is he worth it? Is the God of the universe worth it? There is going to come a day where we will all see God face to face. Whenever that time comes for you, you will see God face to face. And the reality is, y'all, the moment you see him, the moment you get even a glimpse of God, you will know that he is worth it. Look through the Bible. Every story of anyone in the Bible who has ever seen God, who has ever had that experience with God, right? What's David say in the Psalms? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Never has anyone come away from an encounter with God and said, nah, I'm good. Right? Isaiah in the temple, Job at the end of the book of Job, none of them come into this encounter with God and say, eh, God, I see what you're asking, but eh, I'd kind of rather stick around here for some of the stuff I have on this earth. Never. God is worth it, church. And if you don't know that now, can I beg you to seek after him? right here, right now, when you get home, whatever it is, to just get down on your knees and to just ask him. We talked about this last week, but just to ask him, God, show up. God, I am here for you. Even if you don't know, you know, God, I don't even know if you're really there. I don't even know if all this stuff is real. But if it is, I want it. If this is what's really going on, I want this. Because my way here is broken. And then you count the cost and make the decision, is God worth it? Will you give everything for him? I want to take a, a moment this morning. The worship team is, is going to come up and they're going to play through uh, just, just a chorus. But I just want to spend a minute for all of us to just take time to ask that question. To ask the Holy Spirit to, to move in our hearts and to work through that question. Count the cost. There is a cross that God is asking you to bear. I don't know what that cross is. I don't know what that cross looks like. But there is a cross he's calling you to bear. So right now, 
I want to take time for you to count the cost. Look at the cross he's asking you to bear. And make up your mind. Is following Jesus worth it? So can we spend just a minute letting God move in our midst, letting God move in our hearts, and then I'll come back and close us out.
imagine that. But listen, y'all, you cannot make this decision under the influence of anyone or anything else. You can't make this decision because, well, this is what my mom would always wanted for me. This is this is what my family would really want. This is what, you know, you can't make this decision for any reason except because y'all, I've followed God for a while and he always calls me on that kind of stuff, right? Anytime we make a decision, it's for the wrong reason. Some of y'all know this. I started following Jesus. I gave my heart to the Lord because I went to church to impress this girl right here, right? I thought, man, if I just start going to church, but then God grabbed me. And the decision I make today, I love you, Jana, but it has nothing to do with her. It has nothing to do with the fact that I want my kids to have a godly father who follows after God with all his heart. It doesn't have anything to do with that. My answer is 100% yes, church. I will follow God no matter what he asks of me. Whatever that is, if tomorrow he asks me to lay down my life, then my answer is yes, even if I don't understand it. But I am all in for him. And so this morning, I would ask you, if you are with me, if you have counted the cost, and if you've, if you've prayed and you haven't felt anything yet, then don't commit. Don't do it yet. But if right now you know without a shadow of a doubt you are 100% in, you are all in, I want you to stand. I got all the worship team. They, they don't have a choice. <laughs> you stack the deck so that it looks good, right? And I want you to repeat after me. We're going to say what we have said Every Sunday that we've closed in this sermon series, this quote from Puritan minister John Owen. But this is it, y'all. Gospel House, we are going all in. No matter what cross God has called us to bear, we are going all in. So repeat after me. My goal is God himself. At any cost, dear Lord, and by any road, Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough. Mm-hmm.